0: Across the UK, across continental North America, and around the world on the internet, by webcast and by podcast, my name is Howard Hughes, and this is The Unexplained. Very good to have you there. Here in London, it is grey, but it is fairly mild. I think uh, temperatures might improve over the next week or so. That's enough of a weather report for now, I think. Thank you for the emails that keep coming in. I see them all and note them all. If you have a guest suggestion or something to say, go to my website, theunexplained.tv, follow the link there, and you can send me an email in that way. And if your email specifically requires a reply or response, then please put in your email in the subject line, reply required. And then I will understand that that is what you need and get round to it. Uh, Very busy on the email front lately. Thank you very much. It's nice to hear always from new listeners, uh, wherever in the world you might be. This edition of The Unexplained, three guests from my TV show talking about three hot topics, certainly two hot topics, and something that never fails to be a hot topic. That is science and understanding it. Guest number one, um, from The debrief, Christopher Plain, great friend of this show, we had him back on on Sunday last February the 5th, to explain what we knew at that point about the Chinese balloon shot down over U.S. airspace, the surveillance balloon as it appears now to be, uh, the wreckage now being examined, of course. It was a huge story for about seven or ten days. Uh, Around the world. Continues to be so, of course, with the shooting down of something else as I record these words. Now, we may well get more information on that by the time that you hear this. But I thought Christopher's take on it anyway is very interesting, even though it is uh, the situation as it stood last uh, Sunday, the 5th of February. So, Christopher Plain from the debrief giving us his time and expertise, number one. Number two, giving his time and considerable expertise. Seth Shostak from SETI talking about. The discovery that signals from space can be decoded with AI, and a bunch of people who are doing that, and what that might mean for the future of trying to find that signal that may well be from somewhere that's inhabited. So we'll talk about that. Number three, Marcus Chown, British science writer and science broadcaster and author. Um, great man, Just a few comments from him around his new book, which is a book basically dealing with all of those ballpark questions that all of us who are not scientific like to ask, like what is gravity? What's a black hole? What's a quantum computer? Those sorts of things. So I'm just going to get a few words from uh, from his long conversation on last Sunday's show, and you can hear that. And of course, you can check out the book too. It's Marcus Chown, C-H-O-W-N, and the book literally, I think, has come out in the last 10 days or so. So three things on this edition of The Unexplained. Let's get to number one, From the TV show, Christopher Plain, head writer at The Debrief, talking about what the Americans shot down over their territory, the balloon. There was a lot of faffing, as we say here in the United Kingdom. Faffing means kind of, uh, if you're in another country watching this now, uh, faffing means kind of uh, deliberating, you know, uh, being dithery about the thing. Uh, And finally, they've done it anyway. The president gave the order. And this thing has been shot down. Now, we have to say a few things about it. From the reports, this thing is bigger than a bus. In fact, it's the size of a couple of buses. What was it doing there? And what about the reports of a second one? I saw a report out of Canada that there might have been one there, but there was certainly one that was reported in South America, Central America. Um, So this is a strange story. OK, uh, BBC put it this way. The US has shot down a giant Chinese balloon that it says has been spying on key military sites across America. Uh, the Department of Defense confirmed its fighter jets brought down the balloon over US territorial waters. China's foreign ministry later expressed strong dissatisfaction and protest against the US's use of force to attack civilian unmanned aircraft. Well, aircraft in its broader sense, I think you'll find. So the thing's been brought down. Um, bits of it are in the sea. They are at some depth, we understand, and moves around to you know, retrieve those and then try and find out what's in them. Was it spy equipment? Was it a weather balloon, as the Chinese claimed? What was this all about? This is a bizarre story. Christopher Plain, head writer for The Debrief. I knew he would be all over this. He's online to us now. And uh, Christopher, thank you very much for doing this with us again.
1: Howard, happy to be on anytime you need me.
0: Listen, I don't know about you, but there are a few things to me and my sensibilities that don't add up about this story. Am I just a suspicious old geezer, as we say here in the United Kingdom, or are there facets of this story that are weird?
1: There are at least three or four that are very weird. uh, Figuring out the origin, figuring out the nature of it, the fact that maybe it was maneuvering, which balloons usually don't do. So... There's a bunch of things about this story that are really odd.
0: Right. And one of the things that, unless I have missed a lot of the coverage in America that has asked this question, um, I don't think anybody has asked. Maybe you did for the piece that you've written for the debrief. And here's a photograph of that uh, said uh, very peculiar item. And again, it would be nice to see it closer up. But that's the one that we've got in most of the media. If this was a weather balloon and a weather monitoring device that had simply drifted off course. Would the scientists, in terms of international scientific protocol, not have gone on the phone or whatever method of communication that they use, communicated with scientists in America and said, look, chaps, uh, one of our balloons is missing. We think it's coming your way. Nothing to worry about, and we'll try and retrieve it if we can. Um, That didn't happen, did it?
1: No, you know. Uh, when we're dealing with China, Howard, you know, I report on a lot of advancements and Chinese probes going to the moon, things of that nature. It is kind of a weird area when it comes to that, because everything ultimately runs through the government in China. So uh, you would like to think that the scientists would get on the phone with each other and... uh and and key in American scientists and American defense officials, hey, one of our balloons got away from us, and uh, Mm. uh, don't anybody panic. (laughs) But unfortunately, even if it really were, which I don't think anyone at this point thinks it was actually a weather balloon, but Mm. even if it really was, uh, I don't think the nature of communication between scientists in the two countries is, uh, I don't think they have the liberty in uh, China to jump on the phone independently and say, Hey! Don't shoot our weather
0: balloon down. What? While this thing was being monitored, and it was being monitored for what the thick end of forty-eight hours or so, wasn't it? We first knew about seventy-two. All right, seventy-two hours. They're monitoring this thing. Were they, as far as you're aware, Chris, jamming whatever signals it may have been sending back to its base?
1: So nobody has gone on the record to say that, but um, Wolf Blitzer on CNN had uh, multiple unnamed sources within the defense department saying that, that yes, they were, once they zeroed in on it and decided they were gonna let the natural wind currents, which do run from west to east, they were gonna let it carry it across the country and end up in the water, which is what they did, um, that uh, yes, they were theoretically actively jamming whatever sort of signal intelligence or electronic intelligence uh, equipment might have been on that balloon and uh, keeping it from gathering any more data until they can shoot it down. In,
0: in just a second, we've got some footage of this thing being shot down, but I just want to ask you this before we get to it. Um, if this thing is was there to spy, effectively, on military sites or whatever it was there to spy upon, I thought in this day and age, but what do I know that's worth knowing? That we were being surveilled constantly from space by satellites, Why do they need balloons?
1: We are being constantly surveilled from space by satellites. You are correct there. Here's the key point to keep in mind. Imagine you wanna listen in on a conversation happening inside someone's house. Would it be better to stand outside their house or would it be better to have a microphone inside the room? So I think that's the way to look at a spy balloon is it's on the right side of the upper levers of the atmosphere. It's in the stratosphere, so it's just kinda the troposphere is from the ground up to about 45,000 feet. That's where airplanes and pretty much everything else travels. It was just in that next level up in the stratosphere. Mm. So it's in a perfect position, yes, to monitor weather, although typically weather balloons kind of will bounce between those areas in the top of the troposphere and the mesosphere. This thing was clearly operating at almost 60,000 feet, which is a you know, where you would put the U-2 spy plane back in the 20th century or the SR-71 Blackbird. This is perfect uh, spying area, if Mm. you will.
0: In the wake of 9-11, and we will get to that video, by the way, of this thing being shot down as the piece de resistance of this conversation. But in the wake of 9-11, I stood on the streets of New York asking Americans at that time um, whether they felt safe in their country. And the response that they got, I think, was a little different from the response you might get here. And it was very heartwarming, I felt, who, as somebody who went through that uh, awful time you know, with those people and had American friends who suffered there. And they said, almost unanimously, I feel safe everywhere I go. I feel our government is looking after us. Do you think the fact that this thing was able to get in, do whatever it was doing, and then they hung about before they did anything about it, would in some way, dent people's feeling of security at this time? That's a strange question to ask, but I think it's pertinent.
1: I I do think it's a good question. I don't know as a science writer if it's right up my alley, but Mm. I will tell you that I I think the feeling is with, as you pointed out, satellites going overhead all the time that we're pretty much being watched. Now, if they retreat, you know, the FBI is digging this thing out of the ocean and they're expecting to take a few days to do it because they're treating it like a like a crime scene is the best way to put it. They're, they they see where the debris is. They've zeroed in on it, but they're going to. So if they dig it up and they found some sort of nuclear agent or some sort of biological agent or something. Yeah. The idea that that could just be floated over the ocean and dropped on Americans, I think would definitely have to impact that feeling of security.
0: So, somebody um, needs to do some explaining pretty quick. Let's, while we've got time to do it, run the video uh, of this thing being shot down with the sound that went along with it, Chris. Break one. Flash one. CLI one. I just got a splash. That is a kill. The balloon is completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. You talked a second ago about what's going to be done with the bits of this they may find. Um, That's going to be fascinating, isn't it? What are they going to be looking for first?
1: So first of all, just the instrumentation. So if it's a weather balloon, it will have the type of instruments that measure weather, right? Barometers and thermometers and air pressure gauges and things like that. If it's a spy balloon, it's going to have the type of equipment on it that measures electronic intelligence and signal intelligence and radio waves and that sort of stuff. So even if it's shattered, I mean, it's going to hit the ocean, you know, somewhere between 150 and 500, three, four, 500 miles an hour, depending on the on the shape of it and the nature of it. Um, So it's going to be shattered. But even if you shatter a, a barometer and you dig up all the pieces, you'll be able to put it back together and say, this was a weather device. So I think that's the biggest piece of information we'll get I did allude, Howard, to the fact that Scientific American put out a report yesterday uh, in the States that uh, there was observations of this thing maneuvering. And that when you look at the pictures, this is a pretty typical balloon design with a balloon and then an instrumentation package hanging under it. It's not a a dirigible. It's not a blimp shaped balloon or a- Balloons float. They don't maneuver. You know, something that should be able to maneuver. Mm. So. I think they will also look to see, is there something unique going on with this ability to maneuver?
0: Do you think America's got, if it is a surveillance device that can maneuver, and we're told this thing is bigger than a bus, it's huge. Has America got stuff like this? Is America doing this as well?
1: You know, I mean, if you think about the lore around uh, Roswell and the crashed potential alien craft way back in 1947, and the ultimate answer by the Department of Defense was that it was a mogul balloon. Mogul balloons were huge. I mean, they were five, six times uh, as big as this device. So uh, yeah, we have balloons this big. We don't have, we- weather balloons are usually about 20 feet, you know, not even half a bus in size. So this is much larger than a weather balloon. It it, it sure seems designed from an atmospheric effect to travel in an area of the atmosphere where you would do spying, to carry mm-hmm. instrumentations that would be for spying. And yeah, would would be a size and nature that sure seems like a spy balloon.
0: You've written a piece about this for the debrief, which I, you know, heartily recommend. Is there anything that I haven't asked you? Is there a a killer point here about this that I should be getting in here?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I just, I've already mentioned, but I do think the maneuverability is something that has raised a lot of eyebrows. It's something that the Department of Defense has commented on in a couple of different briefings about it seemed to be able to maneuver. And balloons just don't do that. They either go up or they go down and they ride with the wind. Now, when you look at it, there's nothing extraordinary about the shape or design that would tell you maneuver, but there are some advanced propulsion systems that people like the Horizon Drive or the EM Drive that are in development stages that the Department of Defense is supposedly putting money into. So could this thing have some unique propulsion mechanism that lets it, be both a balloon Mm. and a maneuverable balloon. I think that's something people are really looking forward to. And I think in the science community, that's the big question is the reports of the maneuverability sure raised a lot of eyebrows.
0: So this ain't over. This story is not over by a country mile. There's much more to say about this. And I still think there's a lot of mileage, even though I know that the technology of it is your bailiwick, not the politics of it. There's an awful lot of interest, I think, going to be in the notion that America's sacrosanct borders have been violated seemingly in this way. People, yep. I think, will be concerned because from Americans that I know and have known all my life, you like to believe, and it has been true for decade upon decade, I think, that your country, whereas Europe borders all kinds of you know, hostile entities and, and actors, and you know, it, it's a mix over here and in other parts of the world, People like to think that America is literally its own balloon, it's safe, it's sacrosanct. And I think people are gonna be believing differently now unless we discover something else.
1: I remember when uh, a gentleman flew an ultra white aircraft and landed on the White House lawn a couple of decades ago. And we were all dumbfounded because as Americans, we felt like you couldn't even get that close to flying over the White House without getting shot down so i think the reality of security versus the illusion is something one other technological thing i'll point out howard is a lot of people have emailed me or messaged me and asked me why didn't we just grab it why did we have to shoot this thing down and let it smash into the ocean and shatter into pieces and that would be just based on how high it was Hmm. it's an area of the atmosphere you couldn't really send a proper helicopter drones up there cuz we do have anti-drone technology that has big nets that are used to capture other drones right out of the sky. So we do have that type of technology the DOD does. But to operate at that high a level, the atmosphere is just too thin. So your really options are send another balloon up or or send what they did an F22 Raptor equipped yeah. with a missile that could go up there and shoot the thing down. So and that's the people why who- we didn't didn't grab it uh, en masse without damage.
0: Because it would have been too hit and miss. And, you know, this operation had to go 110 percent right. You know, our boys, uh, in inverted commas, had to shoot that thing down. And the American public needed to see it falling to the the earth or the sea, uh, which they did. Chris Plain, thank you very much indeed. Uh, People can read about this in the debrief, can't they?
1: Yep. Uh, We're going to we have an updated article coming out with a lot of the information we're hearing about the maneuverability and the science aspects of it. And uh, yeah, that's at the debrief.org.
0: But I'm sure as the weeks go by, we will hear more information about this. And of course, the other developing story connected with it, it seems. Uh, And of course, as I record these words, I don't have the full picture on that. That will develop too. So my thanks to Christopher Plain. Seth Shostak from SETI, old friend of the show now, talking about the use of AI to decode signals coming in from space. The Conversation.com and other portals reported this. An international team of researchers looking for signs of intelligent life in space have used AI, artificial intelligence, to reveal eight promising radio signals in data collected at a U.S. observatory. The results of their research, published in Nature Astronomy, are remarkable. The team hasn't yet carried out an exhaustive analysis. The paper suggests the signals have many of the characteristics we would expect if they were artificially generated. Really? Really? Why hasn't this been more talked about by our media? We're going to put that wrong right now uh, with Seth Shostak, uh, old friend of this show, good friend of mine, senior a- astronomy at the SETI Institute, The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. I think I got away with that. Uh, Seth, how are you? I'm just fine, Howard. Seth, are you as excited as whoever wrote this in the conversation.com seems to be?
2: Well, I, you know what? Uh, You're going to knock it down now, aren't this- you? Yes. After after seeing claims that we've got some signals here that might be it. After seeing that for three decades and more, uh, you get a little bit,
0: mm,
2: I wouldn't say sceptical, but you do, you know, restrain your enthusiasm, put it that
0: way. Well, yes, you have to curb your enthusiasm because quite often... We can get overexcited and then we're only in for a letdown. However, this is different, isn't it? This is using artificial intelligence to perhaps do what people can't do. Is that so?
2: That is so. Uh, Artificial intelligence, really, it's machine learning that we use, is a new technique for digging signals out of the radio noise that our, our big antennas pick up. And this has been talked about for a while. It's finally getting implemented, which is to say... We're going to actually start using it now you might think okay well that's an interesting technical discussion or maybe not even so interesting but what does it mean to me the car buyer i mean if you could find signals that are say only half as strong as the kind we can find now coming from the cosmos that means you know you're you're examining eight times the volume of space as you were previously so look you're on a south sea island looking for buried treasure if all you can find are <laughs> chests of gold that that have, I don't know, aluminum uh, uh, fittings and hinges and so forth, and now suddenly you can find any kind of hinges, that might increase your chances of digging up something valuable.
0: Okay. Uh, so where does this leave us? Um, apparently the person who was behind this, the mastermind of this, is is a graduate student. Do you know anything about the originators yeah, of this? Yeah, I think this? it's
2: probably Peter Ma. Mm. I'm not sure. Hmm. But yeah, well, um, anybody in science knows that it's the graduate students who do all the work, uh, <laughs> whereas the faculty gets all the pay, that kind of thing. But in fact, yes, it's a graduate student because, you know, uh, taking courses in artificial intelligence and more specifically machine learning, you know, he really couldn't do that 20 years ago. So that's that's a new technique that just sort of allows you to find things that you hadn't anticipated. Because if you look at what SETI's uh, really doing when it collects all these data, how does it decide if there's really a signal from ET in those data? Well, it looks for a specific type of signal, a signal that's called narrow band. It's a, you know one spot on the radio dial, just as this broadcast would be at one spot on the radio dial. It looks for things that are narrow band. Well, that's just a convenience. That's only because it's the only kind of thing we can look for. But if you put machine learning on the case, you can find a wider range of possible signals.
0: I mean, that's one thing that you told me in one of our very first conversations, I think probably 20 years ago, maybe maybe more, uh, that you can't be looking everywhere all the time. You can be looking in the most likely places. So if you've got a computer doing it for you, then you can look in more places.
2: Well, that, yes, that's, that's certainly true. I mean, you know, you're only looking at one place at a time. And for a very limited amount of time, actually. Typically, you know, you point the antennas at some spot on the sky where you happen to know there's a star system with planets. Maybe you even know if any of those planets could be somewhat like the Earth, you know, with liquid oceans and <clears throat> nice breathable atmospheres and all the things that any extraterrestrial would love to have for their planet. Right? And you can only look at that for a while, and then you have to look somewhere else, presumably. So Yeah, it's a a search that's limited by the um, uh, number of antennas you have to do it, the number of people involved, and and lamentably, the most important thing, how much money you have to run the project.
0: Okay. Um, If in future the big discovery is made and we finally find the ultimate wow signal that is as close to being verifiably created by somebody trying to communicate with us or not, as the case may be, Is it now likely that it's going to be a machine that finds it and not a person? Well,
2: I think that's been the case for a long time, Howard, actually, because this isn't the first application of computers to the problem, right? In the movies, the way SETI's done is somebody puts on a set of earphones like these, right? Maybe, Maybe like yours, I don't know, like somebody's, right? And they're just sort of listening, tuning the dial, hoping to hear something that sounds like an alien signal. But it hasn't been done that way for a very long time. Something like sixty or seventy years. What happens is that the computers are already looking through the single space because honestly, you you wouldn't have enough ear uh, earphones to monitor all the channels that are being monitored. But, no, that,
0: that exactly that. And you know we've had a question sent in. It may well be from Mark, my producer. I'm not sure who it's from. But how many frequencies? I think we have talked about this before. Can you monitor at any one time?
2: Yeah, Hundred it's tens of millions,
0: tens of millions. millions.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and, and that's soon to increase, too. Look, that, that also just depends on computer technology. If you have more compute power, you can listen to more channels at one time. Now, I'm talking to you here from the Silicon Valley in Northern California, and, you know, the guys who are working in the, 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 the next block over, <laughs> and all these uh, high-tech types building faster and faster computers at basically the same price point. So that's the sort of technology that really speeds up the search. Speeding up the search is a good idea. If you can speed it up, then you might be alive when we find a signal.
0: Are you confident that we're going to find something that uh, might excite the world in, in your lifetime, in my lifetime?
2: Well, I'm trying to be careful about what I eat and when I cross the street, Howard. So I'm hoping to be be alive when we find this signal. And uh, somewhat infamous, infamously, uh, many years ago, I was giving a talk in Europe, but I bet everybody in the audience A uh, cup of Starbucks that we would find E.T. within two uh, two dozen years. You did. Now, that's been about, uh, you know, 17 or 18 years ago now. So I'm beginning to get a little worried. I'm going to have to buy a lot of coffee. But in fact, (laughs) I do think. That not only is the the experiment a good experiment, Mm -hmm. but also that it has a good chance of succeeding within our lifetimes.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's probably a flexible deadline anyway. In the words of Carly (laughs) Simon, it'll probably be coming around again. Thank you very much, Seth. It's very kind of you to help me on a Sunday like this. Seth Shostak is Senior Astronomer at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, who is excited, but not overexcited at the prospect of artificial intelligence checking out signals that emanate from space. Uh, If there's any development on that front, you can be sure. We'll talk about it here first. The marvellous Seth Shostak from SETI. Remember listening to him on the old Art Bell shows. He never fails to interest. And now at the end of this, just a few words from science writer and broadcaster Marcus Chown. He's got a new book out about the questions that we commonly ask, those of us who are not scientists and don't understand as much as we should, about basic science things, like what is gravity, what's electricity, and those sorts of things. So it's just nice to hear from Marcus Chown. The whole interview uh, was on the TV show. I'm not going to give you that here. Uh, I'm going to give you a portion of it. So here's Marcus Chown. Uh, He's an award-winning writer and broadcaster, formerly a radio astronomer at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, Royal Literary Fund Fellow at Brunel University. And his books include Deep Breath, The Ascent of Gravity, which was the Sunday Times Science Book of the Year, The Magicians, Infinity in the Palm of Your Hand, What a Wonderful World, Quantum Theory Cannot Hurt You, uh, Felicity Frobisher, and the three-headed Aldebaran Dust Devil. And that's not all of them. Aldebaran? Aldebaran, that's devil. I think is the way to pronounce that. He's got a new book out though, that I think has been waiting to be done for yonks. Um, do people still say yonks? Mark, do people still say yonks? They do. It's been waiting. I don't know. My sister taught me that one, and you know, it goes back. It goes back like most things with me to the seventies. Um, but this book has been waiting to be done for yonks. It is called "The One Thing You Need to Know," and essentially, it's for those of us who go into situations when we need to be able to discourse about something like black holes or gravity or electricity. And you think to yourself, especially if you don't have a scientific background, and I don't, I was crap at science at school, to be quite frank with you. You know, I didn't exactly have the best teachers of science in the world back in those days, so they did not help. But I came out failing most of the exams when it comes to science. So if you wonder One of the reasons why I do science on this show is because I'm actually learning stuff that might be useful. Such is the theme of this book, The One Thing You Need to Know. Marcus Chown is online to us now. Marcus, how are you keeping? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Very good, Marcus. It's nice to see you again. Um, Everything's about AI these days, isn't it, Marcus, though? AI? Yeah. Yeah,
3: I'm a bit worried that, that, you know, even authors will be made redundant by artificial intelligence.
0: Well, I think th- so. I read a, a newspaper report just a week or 10 days ago uh, that kids are getting chatbot GPT to do their homework. Some workers are getting their work done by chatbot GPT. You know, I don't think people realise, and this is not what we were going to talk about tonight, but it's interesting yeah. to reflect on. I don't think ordinary people realise the pace at which this is going.
3: No, I don't, I don't think they do. Um, uh, it could p- completely transform the world. Um, you know, we never expected this because AI, uh, there was a lot of hype about AI about 20 years ago when it was thought we could have expert systems that could, you know, um, replicate a doctor. Uh, but then that proved to be a dead end. But now, you know, this tremendous amount of data that's available that can be crunched Allows a, a different type of intelligence, not our kind of intelligence, but an, inte- you know, an intelligence that can mine data and and behave, or, or certainly see connections and things in the world that we don't see. So you know, I could, I mean, mathematicians are already using AI to supplement their search for new theorems. You know, so yeah, I think it, it's it's who knows. I mean, it could be worrying, really. Do you think it's going to make us lazy? Uh, I don't think so. I think that it'll it'll it'll, be, it'll supplement us. You know, we've used computers to enhance our capabilities. I mean, really, you know, we we've got a, a brain which is like three pounds of you know jelly and water. Uh, you know, we evolved on an African plane three million years ago. You know, uh, um, but we 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 found we, we enhance ourselves. You know, with 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 telescopes that can see to the edge of the universe, uh, you know, microscopes that can see the the the, the 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 invisible world. And this is just another enhancement, I hope, of our, um, you know, our abilities. And I'm hoping that it doesn't supplant us. But of course, there's always the chance that we will be supplanted. And, and one, one of the reasons we may not be seeing any sites of intelligent life in the universe, maybe because it's, I don't know, machine life or something like that. I don't know. Well,
0: I mean, that's... In itself fascinating, there are those, and again, it's not a topic for us, but we do talk about this, who say that uh, some of the aliens that people describe experiencing are actually programmed robots. They're not, you know, sentient, uh, you know, uh, blood coursing through the veins creatures, they're, they're robots. So that's Well,
3: certainly, I mean, I think when you think about interstellar travel, I mean the fastest thing that we've ever created is, is you know the voyager space probe would take something like eighty thousand years to get to the nearest star uh and and the real deal breaker is is we you know if you accelerate very fast through through space or you travel very fast through space the, the the gas the protons that are in interstellar space effectively come at you like that they're being shot at you by a particle accelerator so biological life would be subject to tremendous you know radiation like right, for interstellar travel and it, and it certainly seems that we are we could be too fragile and it might require you know machine or metallic life to suffer the uh, you know, depredations of interstellar flight. Well, isn't
0: Marcus? That, that's 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 interesting, isn't it? And we've discussed on this here before. Uh, we had a, a guy who's a, well, he was a an astronaut and is now um, he's a, a medic who talks about space matters and about the fragility of the human frame, the human constitution to be able to make these journeys. Um, what pe- isn't discussed enough, I don't think, is that. The likes of NASA, the European Space Agency and others are working at the moment frantically and furiously to make sure that the techniques and the materials and the technology that they need to be able to protect us from exactly what you just talked about, can, you know, keeps pace with the development of spacecraft and propulsion systems. Yeah. You know, we might be able happen. to go there, but it's no use being able to go there if you get radiated to the extent that it gives you cancer.
3: Absolutely right. And that's the, that is the deal breaker on traveling to Mars, you know, Mm. um, if there should be a flare on the sun and, and you were flying on a six month journey to Mars, you, you'd probably die. You know, I mean, the, the Apollo astronauts, you probably know, I think it was a, one of the Apollo, Apollo 12, I can't remember. They just missed a solar flare by about a day, something like that. Um, and, and so that is the, that is the real problem. That is the real problem. Um, if you take a lot of shielding with you, that's a lot of mass. And, and the problem is you need fuel to, to uh, shift that mass, and you need fuel to shift the mass of the fuel. So yeah, that is that is a problem which isn't pointed out. We can't actually predict when there are solar flares. I mean, do you remember, I'm just, I, I think I mentioned in my book, the solar flare of 18, I think it was 1851, I can't remember, the Carrington event, which was um, the most powerful solar flare in in recorded history. And at the time, there was there was a a, a a growing technology, the technology of the telegraph, and telegraph operators were electrocuted across the world, because as the magnet, you know, when when we actually we generate electrical power by by changing a magnetic field through a conductor, and that induces a current. So this magnetic field was carried by this plasma, this material from the sun, uh, when it when it cut through. The wires that connected the telegraph over thousands of kilometers induced currents, and 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 telegraph operators were, were electrocuted. In fact, it was so such an amazing flare that it created aurora that you could read a newspaper by Good at the equator at midnight. So when was this again? This was in about 1851. It was called the Carrington event. There was a guy called Richard Carrington. And he had an observatory observatory in in, uh, Reigate, I think it was, in Surrey, just south of London. And he was looking at the sun and he noticed that there was a flare on the sun, so a brightening of the sun, at the very same time that a magnetometer at Q, so this is an instrument that detects the magnetic field, went off scale. And so he made this connection that these two events were connected. Uh, Before that, people thought the sun only affected us through its heat and through its gravity. So this was the first time we realised that we would be affected by actually, you know, kind of an event as serious as the 18, I think 1851, 1854, i would have to check my book. <laughs> we haven't had an event as serious as that since, but it would be, I think there's a risk, you know, there's a, there's a risk, reg- I think, oh, is it my book? Look I'm, at my I've got that. I'm, I'm just
0: looking in the index here, keep talking. Chapter on the sun, <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, on the, on the sun.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I think being... it, it, oh here it is, actually... Carrington event, page fifty two to fifty three. If you'll hold on for a moment right, okay. so I can find it for you. You
3: can you can test me on it now. Eighteen fifty nine, apparently. See, I One of things. Things, one of the things I should tell you about books is that by the time the book has come out, the author has read it so many times that they can no longer remember it. Or even remember whether it's it's interesting or not.
0: (laughs) I think that, I I mean, look, we're going to have to get into the contents of the book any second. But but I think when you're close to something, that's what happens. I I actually have been reminded by listeners and other people who know I've done 720 hours of podcasts, right? Um, I started in 2006. I was one of the first people to do podcasts. You know, I'm not expecting a medal for that. But people tell me every so often, um, we think you should have so-and-so on. And I'll say, that's a good idea. And then either they will come back to me or I will check. And I will discover that I have talked to them. I just simply yes. forgot. <laughs> now, that could well be my advancing age, yeah. uh, But mean, it, it, it might that, be something it, else. You get so close God, to your work.
3: Sorry. The interesting thing about this book is, again, I, I, you, by the time it comes out, you cannot tell whether it's interesting or not. But fortunately, there was somebody who edited it who had done a physics A-level and they got really excited by things and kept telling their friends at parties. So it kind of reassured me that maybe there are some things in there that are interesting.
0: (laughs) Well, we're gonna work our way through it. I think it's great, and I think it's written clearly so that a, a dumbo like me, who was not good at science, can understand this. And you know, sometimes some of the things you talk about here are discussed even on this show. And I don't know as much about them as I should. So I get loads of books in for reviews and stuff, and I can only afford to keep a percentage of them and the rest go to the charity shop. However, this one I'm going to keep by me for all of those occasions when we're maybe talking about black holes or whatever it might be. Um, Okay, why? I think we probably explained it anyway, but you tell me because you're the author. Why did you write The One Thing You Need to Know?
3: In February, only a year ago, I got invited to give a talk at a law firm in Cheltenham. It was called Wiggin. Uh, oh,
0: l- I don't think we should be naming them, but anyway.
3: They are, well, anyway, they asked me to um, give a talk about quantum computers because they were interested in, would it affect their, their you know, their, their firm? What they, need, they just needed to, to be knowledgeable on the subject. And they said, by the way, nobody here knows anything at all about science. Ah. So I thought, oh, my God, you know. Same what, what, here. Yes, exactly. So I thought, well, what's the one thing I need to tell them about quantum computers from which everything else, you know, um, logically, um, you know, is a consequence. So really, that was it. And then I thought to myself afterwards, oh, why, why don't I do this through other subjects? You know, why don't I? Why don't I do? Uh, I mean, my my publisher I approached said, why don't you do it for twenty-one topics? So I do topics like. Quantum theory, quantum computers, um, um, evolution, black holes, as you mentioned, the Big Bang—you know these kind of things. So that was really the idea to just take, to just you know, point out one thing and try and um, deduce everything else from that one thing. You can't do it in every single case. I've got a chapter about the brain, and obviously the brain is something you know the last frontier. Really, we don't really understand.
0: All the right, brain. There's we, not one we've got. Thing. Two minutes before I've got to take commercials, Um, I wasn't going to start with the brain, but I was fascinated that you included the brain because the brain is such a complex thing and we don't understand all there is to know about it anyway. So if somebody asked you to explain what the brain is and what it's for, what would you say?
3: I mean, the brain is the only organ that that, that exists to make changes in, in itself, really. That's what it does. I mean, nothing else. I mean, you know, a liver just stays a liver. Uh, you know, your heart stays your heart. But the thing that the brain does is it makes changes in itself. And absolutely everything that you you do, every, every our conversation now, the people who are listening to our conversation. The, the connections between the neurons, which are like the atoms of the brain, are changing the strength of the connections because of the words that you're actually hearing. You might think they're boring. You might think they're interesting. I don't know. But basically, I've made a physical change in your brain. Uh, and, and everything you know i mean i i can i'm looking around at it in my i'm in my kitchen here you know i'm looking at the clock the fact that it's 20 past 11 is just registered and and and, and that has made a change is in my brain
0: that interesting so the, the other organs that we have of course they do change but it, that change is mostly aging yeah that's what that and, is and but and the, the brain change. is actually adapting to the circumstances around it
3: I think we have something like 100 billion uh, neurons, and which, which uh, by coincidence is equivalent to the number of stars there are in our galaxy, and they can make something like 10,000 connections with other neurons. So that means something like, I mean, uh, one followed by fourteen zero possible connections, and all those connections can change their strength depending on what you're learning, and, and, and uh, what we learn, uh, our memory, all that is, is stored in the strength of these connections.
0: If anybody asked me ever to explain what is electricity, I couldn't tell them. And in the book, you are brave enough to tackle that.
3: Yeah, and the reason is that I thought to myself, you know, I was puzzled myself. You know, how how is it that that um, we can, you know, electricity can light my light bulbs in my house. It can it can run my toaster, my washing machine, and not just mine. But the, you know, it, it can light the, the homes and, and run the appliances of billions of people. I mean, how is that actually possible? And I began to, when I thought about it, I realised it's down to the phenomenal strength of the electric force. Okay, so so you probably think that the gravitational force, gravity, is strong. I mean, if you try and jump, you know, a meter in the air, it it pulls you back down again, doesn't it? You know, so. You know, if you fall from, I don't know, from a a ladder, you can break your leg. You know, I mean, gravity, you think, is strong. But the electric force, right, which glues together the atoms in your body, isn't just 10 times stronger than gravity, or 100 times, or even a million times. It's actually 10,000 billion, 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 billion times stronger. Okay, so that's one followed by 40 zeros, stronger. Okay, you may think to yourself, well, okay, I'm walking down the street, I pass someone in the street, how come, how come I don't, I'm not pulled towards them with this incredible force? It's because matter comes in two types. It has a, what we call a negative charge and a positive charge. So the, 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 the uh, unlike charges you probably learned from score attract and like charges repel. So in all normal matter, because there's an equal amount of negative and positive charge, this repulsion and attraction is perfectly balanced. So you have no sense whatsoever that there's this phenomenal force. But if you were to actually create a charge imbalance, balance, you could unleash it. So I, I was thinking about this and I thought, say you had a mosquito. This maybe gives you some idea of, of, of the power. Say you have a mosquito and it's made of atoms like you and me and um, say you removed all the, so the atoms are like you know they have a little nucleus like the sun around which electrons orbit like like planets and the nucleus has a positive charge and the electrons have a negative charge so you removed all the electrons from a mosquito um, you only have the positive charge the positive nuclear and they, they would repel each other okay so how much i'll ask you how much uh, energy do you think that they would repel each other with uh, with the energy of a sparkler the energy of a stick of dynamite, the energy of a hydrogen bomb, or a global mass extinction? What do you think?
0: Well, they're only little, I presume, just a kind of uh, prick on the finger.
3: Basically, the mosquito would explode with the energy of a global mass extinction, so equivalent to the energy of the city sized asteroid that slammed into the earth 66 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs. So all from a tiny mosquito. If you unleashed the power of the electric force. So you see immediately, if you can create even a small charge imbalance, you can unleash this phenomenal force, you know, and we see it, we see it when you get a charge imbalance in the, in the sky, during a thunderstorm, mm. and we get a lightning bolt, but that's exactly what we do. So, I mean, I, and, and the uh, we are totally puzzled why there could be one force, the electric force, that is one followed by 40, zero stronger than another. So one of the fundamental questions, because we're trying to, we're pretty certain that the four forces which glue the universe together, there, there are four fundamental forces, there's a gravitational force, there's the electric force, uh, and there are two nuclear forces that operate inside, deep inside atoms. We're pretty certain They're all facets of the same force. And in the Big Bang, there was only one force and and these forces have split apart. But how can you possibly have a description of those three forces when, you know, a formula when one of them is one followed by 40 zeros bigger than the rest? So that is a huge mystery. In, in science, so you may have heard of. So I'm going. I'm going off on a tangent here. No, I, I'm just. You I'll
0: tell you what, I'm just wondering, and I'm sorry, I'm jumping right <laughs> in the here. There's you going off on a tangent, and here's me jumping in. That's two transgressions in one. Um, if if it's so complicated and these forces are so elemental, which literally they are, how did we ever unlock them? You know, it's it's been done for us, as you said, in in lightning, thunderstorm, but how how were we able to harness this?
3: Well, I mean again it's a number of inventions that that, that made this possible I mean it, you know the Greeks knew about static electricity you know they knew, they knew about lightning they knew that if you rubbed amber against fur or whatever you you could you could you know you, you could get them to stick you know' with stati- we, we can do this now with a balloon you rub a balloon up your sweater or whatever they knew about static electricity the problem is you couldn't probe this and try and understand it unless you could generate some steady flow and of course the invention of the battery in about the late 18th century that was the beginning and if you go i'm actually uh, i'm actually in Marylebone, in central london here i'm only a mile away from the lab where michael faraday did all of his, uh, you know, he, he did his experiments and basically created the modern world. He created the modern world of uh, the electrically powered world. And in, if you if you walk in off the street, it's just off Piccadilly, if you walk in there, you can just walk in there in, into his basement lab, uh, you'll see a battery that he brought back from the man who invented batteries because... Uh, Faraday wor- worked with. Well, he was the, he was the kind of assistant of Humphrey Davy. Humphrey Davy was the Brian Cox of his day. The Davy you know, he, lamp. He, yeah, he, he discovered chemical, exactly he discovered chemical elements, and and he took Faraday, the young Faraday, on a tour around Europe, and they met um that Volta who, who invented the battery and he, he sent the, his, a, a battery to Faraday, and you can see the battery he sent. So once you had that that source of electricity, then you could start experimenting, which of course Faraday did. Faraday, completely uneducated person, no 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 uh, academic qualifications whatsoever, entirely self-taught um, and in later life, humiliated by the the Oxford and Cambridge educated physicists of his day, um you know until the greatest physicists probably between newton einstein wrote to him and that was james clark maxwell the the, the scottish physicist
0: so uh, if you're down the pub yeah, and you need the, the pub, answer yeah. if you're down the pub and you need the answer to the question what is electricity what you've explained to me at the beginning of this i think is brilliant it is an imbalance of forces it's an imbalance of huge and well, elemental forces here.
3: yeah yeah and there is this tremendous electrical force. I mean, you don't know why. Why it's, it's uh, But, but it is su- it's such a phenomenal force, isn't it? Um, as I say, what, no one can imagine one followed by 40 zeros. But if you realise if you realize that you create a, a charge imbalance, you can unleash some of that tremendous force. You can see how we can power the well. You know, it, it is just a, a phenomenal thing. And if um, we ever,
0: ever work out how to, to produce it, it for
3: free. You know, Faraday realised we we're, we're electrically we powered you know i mean basically um, we create batteries basically charge differences across cell membranes and that's how we drive every every process in our body that's how we create the chemicals the proteins and all the things that we need in our body you know we are electrical power electrical powered when you when you have a bowl of pasta and you can run a marathon that is actually that the, the, it's the electrical power from that pasta that is that is uh, and of course that was re- recognized very early on because in the 1790s, um, uh, Luigi Galvani accidentally he noticed that the, 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 the dead frog's legs twitched when you actually attached them to a battery. You know, and it was realised that, and of course that then inspired Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. You know, 19-year-old Mary Gee. Shelley.
0: One thing leads you know? to another. They <laughs> so used you
3: to, those- you know, yeah, you could animate dead flesh, and she wrote Frankenstein. You know, so for there those was, there of was, us
0: who used to stay off school and watch the old um, BBC Two trade test films. Uh, this is going back a long way. Um, but one of them was about a thing called Evoluon, which was a great exhibition, may still be there in Eindhoven, Holland. And there's a frog there. And I've never forgotten the thing that the frog said. And for a whole generation watching this right now, people of my kind of age and a little bit younger, perhaps, uh, who used to, uh, in Liverpool, as we say, sag off school and watch these films. This film about Evoluon, this wonderful science exhibition that I always wanted to go to. There was a frog and the frog said the words, I am the frog, but for me, Galvani would be nowhere and you've just brought that to life for me thank you very okay. much Lee now here's one for you from the book yeah, got one from yeah. the book for you what is a, if you have to describe to somebody in the pub what is a black hole where do you begin
3: well a black hole is a region of space where 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 uh, gravity is so strong that nothing not even light can escape um and um if if it, the only real description of a black hole came from Einstein's theory of gravity in 1915, where he realised, unlike Newton, Newton thought there was a, actually a force of gravity between the sun and the earth. You know, like a piece of piece of elastic that connects the sun and the earth and keeps the earth going around the sun. Uh, and and uh, Einstein realised that was wrong. You know, he realised that there is no force of gravity. What actually happens is uh, a body like the the sun warps the space-time around it. We can't see it because it's a four-dimensional thing and we're three-dimensional creatures, but it actually creates a valley in the space-time. So the Earth goes around the sun, around, around this valley, rather like a, a, a ball in a roulette wheel, round and round. Uh, and in 1916, a man um, who had volunteered to fight for the German army in the First World War, his name was Karl Schwarzschild, He got a copy of Einstein's paper, which Einstein was actually presenting his theory in November 1915 in four lectures in four weeks. And um, Schwarzschild got a copy. I think he actually may have attended one of the lectures on his leave from the front. He was actually on the German front in Belgium. Uh, And he realised, well, first of all, he found a solution to Einstein's theory, right? So Einstein had replaced Newton's one formula, which described gravity, with 10. So this made the theory incredibly difficult to deal with. What you needed to do is you needed to find how space was warped by a particular mass. But this, Einstein thought it was impossible. This guy uh, on, on the uh, Western Front realised, he, he, he found a way, he found a solution, he found a curvature of space around a point mass like the sun, And he wrote to Einstein, and Einstein was shocked to receive this letter from the Western Front. But he hadn't finished. He realised that if the mass became more and more concentrated, the valley of space-time around it would become steeper and steeper until it became a bottomless pit out of which nothing could
0: escape. So like a giant whirlpool.
3: Yeah, and he had no word for it, but there isn't a single person on Earth today who doesn't know the word for it, I'm pretty certain, because the word is black hole. But that was not coined until 1967, so nobody actually had a word to describe this object. Einstein didn't believe that they existed, and throughout the, really the first half of the 20th century, physicists tried like mad to prove that these things could not exist, um, because they just thought they were just too too mad, too ridiculous. But then in 1971, uh, two astronomers working at Hussman Sioux Castle, which is this 16th, 15th century castle in Sussex, discovered the first black hole, which was called Cygnus X1. And and that was Paul Murdin and Louise Webster. Now, Louise Webster is a woman physicist, a woman astronomer, and nobody knows her name. She's been entirely forgotten. Nobel Prizes have gone for black holes, but no one remembers Louise Webster. She was an Australian. Unfortunately, she had the first liver transplant in Australia, And she died quite young. She was in her 40s. What a sad story.
0: This person needs to be recognised for that, because a lot of other people have had recognition. Uh... Yeah.
3: So anyway, so they found that... So now, to cut a long story short, Mm -hmm. far from being uh, ridiculous and objects of science fiction, we've now discovered that there's a giant one in the centre of every galaxy. Uh, We don't actually know what it's doing, what they're doing there. So we've we've got a relatively small one in our galaxy, but some of these galaxies, uh, some galaxies have massive black holes of maybe 30 or 40 billion times the mass of the Sun. So we now realise that these things that Einstein thought were, couldn't be possible are now central to the life of the universe. But we don't actually know why. We don't know what they're doing there. We don't know if they came before galaxies and they were the seeds around which galaxies were uh, coalesced or whether they formed in, in, in galaxies, that were, you know, the galaxies came first we don't actually know. And there's this weird connection between these supermassive black holes and their parent galaxies. Now, when I tell you that a black hole, the super, even a supermassive black hole, compared to its galaxy is like a bacterium compared to London. Now, you wouldn't expect that the street plan of London would be controlled by something as small as a bacterium. But the actual motion of the stars in a galaxy is controlled by its supermassive black hole.
0: Isn't that an incredible thing? Marcus Chown, always a friend of the show, man with tremendous scientific knowledge I think you will find. And before that, you heard Seth Shostak from SETI on using AI to decode signals from space. And before that, the ongoing worry about what other nations may be sending over the United States and indeed probably my nation too to perform surveillance missions, balloons and drones and those sorts of things. How much of this is going on? I think we're going to learn much more about this very, very quickly, I would say and maybe everything that we've said here will be out of date by the time that you hear it. I don't know, but it's still interesting to hear. More great guests in the pipeline here at The Unexplained online. So until we meet again, my name is Howard Hughes. This has been The Unexplained. Please, whatever you do, stay safe, stay calm, and above all, please stay in touch. And if you have made a donation to The Unexplained uh, for the website and all the other stuff that we do, thank you very, very much for doing that. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.